text is Luke 24, 50 through 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and while lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding of your word. Pray that you would help us to keep your commands for our own good and for your glory. Pray that you would lead us to cherish your word, that it might encourage us to live holy lives. We thank you that you've given us your son, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we marvel that he has ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand, interceding for us as our advocate, that he is the prophet greater than Moses, that he is the king that David was promised, that he is our great high priest. Pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we would delight in him all of our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we find ourselves at the end of the book of Luke. Sort of. I'm going to continue things out a little bit next week, but we'll be in Acts. But here we finally come to the last four verses of the book of Luke. And as a church, I believe it's been over three years that we have been studying the book of Luke, even though I'm only here for part of it, and Jim was here for part, and Nick was here for part as well. And so we finally come to the end of this wonderful gospel, and we're given an incredible picture of Jesus. Jesus ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. And yet, it's interesting because there's something that happens here, and as it plays out in salvation history, that draws my attention to something that I see quite frequently. I'm sure many of you have experienced, of your parents or having been children at one point yourselves, I'm sure you've experienced it as well. When you are either told by your mom or your dad, or you tell your children, I'm going to go in the other room for a little bit. I need you to do this. I need you to clean your room. I need you to put your clothes away. I need you to pick all the clothes up off the floor and put them in your dirty clothes basket. Other examples I'm sure you can think of. You tell your children, uh, or your parents tell you, I will be back in X amount of time. Maybe it's an indeterminate amount of time. Maybe it's just, I will return, and I want this done by the time you're back. And how frequently is it that you come back and your, your children have done absolutely nothing that you have said? Or, on the flip side of that, when you were a child, exactly the same thing. Your parents told you, I will be back eventually. This needs to be done before I return. And you have done not a single bit of what they said because you thought you had more time. Or, more likely, you just didn't want to do it. 
There's a sense that in this parenting and child relationship example, we have something quite similar to what we receive from Jesus. That Jesus has ascended into heaven with a promise of his return. He's expected his disciples to be obedient to his commands in that time being. And part of that leads us to what we should understand that we are responsible for in the time that we are here. But before we get into this text, I want to draw our attention to another parallel text that Luke also wrote in Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. And we're not going to, I'm not going to exhaust both texts, so we'll spend most of the time in Luke, but I'm going to be referencing quite a bit from Acts 1. And so if you would like to take a moment to turn there, it's not up there on the screen, but um, I'll be reading Acts 1, 6 through 11, where Luke in his second volume of Acts repeats his statements of the ascension of Jesus as similar to what we just read, but he expands upon them. So starting in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So there's a few things that I'll draw from the text in Acts, but we will be spending most of our time this morning looking at these last four verses in Luke 24. But before I get into that, I want to draw your attention back to a text we looked at a few months ago in April. And if you don't remember, it's on our church YouTube page and on our podcast feed if you want to look back at that at some point. But in Luke 20, in verses 41 through 44, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, where he reads, or he says to them, he poses this question to the Pharisees, and he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? And then in reading from Psalm 110, Jesus says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? And so I won't rehash the entirety of that sermon, but as I mentioned, if you want to go look back, it's, um, it's in April. But in this, he draws their attention to the promised son of David, who is promised that his throne will never end, and he applies that text to himself. And in so doing, he demonstrates that he is the Son of God and also the Son of Man. He is truly God and truly man. One of the things that I pointed out when we were looking at that text is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted there in Luke 20. It's quoted several times in the book of Hebrews. And yet here in Luke 24, in Jesus' ascension, we see fulfillment of that text. As Jesus ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. 
And while the ascension of Jesus into heaven is a very important part of these four verses, it's not the only thing that's going on. There's two extremely important things that are happening here. And so in these two parts, we see that Jesus ascends and his disciples adore. So Jesus ascends. He, but what is he doing while he ascends? Well, first off, he's blessing them. But in verse 50, we read that Jesus takes them out of Jerusalem into Bethany. And Bethany is about two miles away on the Mount of Olives. So it's not far from Jerusalem. And this is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And thus, it's also the location where Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And thus, it's also the place where Jesus himself would ascend into heaven. And yet, there's an odd thing. We talk a lot about the death of Jesus, we talk, which we should. We talk a lot about the resurrection of Jesus, which again, we should. But sometimes it seems we don't talk nearly as much about the ascension of Jesus. And yet, the ascension of Jesus is just as important as the other two. And why is that? Well, first is that Jesus rose in the flesh and Jesus ascended in the flesh. Jesus didn't shed his skin like a snake sheds his skin as his ascension, but Jesus rose and ascended bodily into heaven. But the ascension demonstrates things to us about Jesus. They show us who he is. They also show us where Jesus is. And there was something that we discussed in Sunday school this morning in the book of Numbers, where in Numbers 17, following Korah's rebellion, where a bunch of people decide they don't like Moses' rule and they're going to try to overthrow him, and then God opens up the earth and the earth, the giant sinkhole really swallows up Korah and his men, and then the next day there's another rebellion where the people accuse Moses of killing all these people, and then there's a plague. And so repeated statements of who God is, what God is doing, and affirming his priesthood. Um, but following that, there's a remarkable scene where Aaron's staff is taken among the 12 tribes of Israel, and Aaron's staff is taken, and if you're familiar with the story, you know that the staff, this dead staff, the next day buds, that it sprouts flowers, and it sprouts leaves, and it sprout, sprouts almonds. And so from this dead staff, life comes, and it's an affirmation of Aaron's priesthood. It's God saying to the people, this is Aaron who I've chosen. He is the priest. Obey him. Listen to him. And similarly here, what we see with Jesus is another affirmation of who Jesus is. It's a confirmation of Jesus' identity. With the ascension of Jesus, there is a confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus is indeed the Son of David. And Jesus is indeed the great high priest. And that Jesus has ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God, where his enemies are being made into his footstool. His sitting down confirms that he is indeed the Davidic king, that he has sat down upon his throne. In addition to that, Jesus' ascension is a prerequisite for the next part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry does not end when he ascends into heaven, but rather his ministry changes to the next portion of what he is doing. His salvific work does not end as he takes a seat, 
So the question then becomes, what is Jesus doing now? But before we get there, there's a key verse from John's gospel that we need to look at. In John 16, verse 7, we read Jesus speaking to his disciples and he tells them something. It's something that leads them to be sorrowful. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus tells his disciples before his death that he is going to go away. And that while goodbyes are never fun, he tells his disciples it's better for them. And it's better for us that he leaves, that he ascends. And it's because of one of the events that follows the ascension, the event of Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit, which we'll look into more next week before we begin our series for Advent. But we must be reminded that the ascension of Jesus was for our good. And it's for our good so that Jesus might send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God dwells in the saints of God who profess faith in Jesus because Jesus has ascended into heaven. And so while we were watching the video relating to the Ten Commandments from our children's series for, um, through, the greatest, or the, through the biggest story, my attention was drawn to and reminded of one of the key parts of the covenant that God cuts with his people. And that's that he will dwell in their midst, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And through the incarnation of Jesus, as Jesus comes and he dwells among us, we see that God is dwelling among his people bodily. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells among the people of God. And in the Holy Spirit, we have God dwelling among us as we eagerly await the return of Christ where we will dwell in the midst of God eternally in a new creation. And yet some who are skeptics or some maybe even who are mocking Christianity might say, well, why didn't Jesus just stay? I mean, if Jesus stayed, people could see him. They would have no choice to believe. Everyone would know that Jesus is who he is. Well, part of the problem is that if we look at the Bible, we see that's not true. That people saw Jesus crucified and rose from the dead and still didn't believe. The Pharisees, as we read in Acts, as we read in the Gospels, they tried to even say, oh, the disciples just stole the body. Even after it was very clear that that didn't happen. So part of those comments don't really hold up. But as Jesus already said, his ascension is better. It is better that he goes away and sends the Spirit. And part of that is caught up in one, the Spirit comes. But also part of that's come up with what Jesus is doing now. Because Jesus didn't sit down at the right hand of God to take a load off. He's not relaxing up in heaven while the Holy Spirit does all the work now. Jesus didn't ascend into heaven only to sit down on the couch and grab a beer and watch a football game. That's not what Jesus is doing now. Jesus is still actively working now. 
He's seated at the right hand of God. He is seated upon his throne. He's reigning. And if we think of Acts 7 and verses 55 and 56, Stephen looks up into heaven as he's about to breathe his last, or as the text says, he's about to fall asleep after he's been stoned. And Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The king shows himself to Stephen. But that's not the only thing. Jesus is also interceding for us. He is the great high priest who is mediating for us, who is our advocate, as Jim spoke of last week. The book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, we see this very clearly. But notice, what is Jesus doing as he ascends into heaven? He is speaking a blessing over his people. In verse 51, well, in 50, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And then 51, while he blessed them. And so the suggestion of the text is that this isn't a short blessing. It likely went on for a period of time. But this blessing draws our attention to what Jesus is doing now. Because where do we see blessings spoken in the Scriptures and in the Old Testament? We see them spoken by the priests. If you go to Leviticus 9, verse 22, we read, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. That's what Jesus does in verse 50. He lifts his hands, and he blesses the people. And then Aaron back to Leviticus 9.22, he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offerings, and the peace offerings. So Aaron, as he's offering these offerings, the sin offerings, which are a symbol of forgiveness that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, blesses the people. Or as we look at the ironic blessing from Leviticus, or sorry, from November, from Numbers, 6, 25 through 27, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. There is Aaron, the priest, speaking a blessing. And Jesus here is speaking a priestly blessing over his disciples. And as he is doing so, he is demonstrating that he has taken on the role of the great high priest. And part of that role is that Jesus is interceding for us. So while we see Jesus praying, or as we see Jesus praying in um, John 17 that we've been discussing on Wednesday evenings, the high priestly prayers we've been taken to call it, Jesus there is interceding for his disciples. But that intercession does not end there with the high priestly prayer. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul draws the correlation there that Jesus, after he has ascended, after he is raised, after he has died, now he is interceding for us us. In Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his disciples. So 
So Jesus ascends into heaven and he pleads on our behalf. His saints will never be overcome and judged for their sins because Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' blood saves completely all of those that it was intended to save. The ascension is also a prerequisite for his second coming. It's a prerequisite for his session, which is a way of speaking of Jesus sitting upon the throne. Prerequisite for Pentecost, for his intercession and his second coming. Christ has to ascend in order to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. And thereby, he opens access to the heavenly places. In Ephesians 2.6, we read that we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that it's also, as I mentioned, a prerequisite for his second coming. And it might sound silly to say that Jesus' ascension is a prerequisite for his second coming, but it's important. Because in order for Jesus to return, he had to leave. In Jesus' first coming, in his incarnation, he arrived in a manger, taking on human flesh. Being born of a virgin, he arrived humbly, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but instead, he came as a baby who grew up into a man. In humility, he took on the cross and died and rose again and victoriously trampled over the grave. And yet in his second coming, it will be quite different. He will not be coming humbly in a manger, but in the second coming of Christ, he will return in splendor and in glory and in judgment with resounding trumpets, He will come in judgment and every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, even those who had pierced him. And some of those who will confess that Jesus is Lord will confess it in terror and trembling and judgment. Because they will have no choice as the Lord returns in glory and splendor. They will realize they'd been wrong. And then others, much similar to how the disciples here respond, will confess in worship and adoration, knowing that the king has returned. The king has returned to gather his bride, and the saints will rejoice as the wedding supper of the Lamb will be a remarkable, wonderful feast. But... As the disciples model here, they worship him. They adore him. Let's look at the disciples' response here to Jesus' ascension. As we rejoice in his resurrection, we ought to take joy and comfort in his ascension, in his ascension as his disciples do. As Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples worship him. And now for us as Christians who regularly sing of the wondrous work of Jesus, we might take this for granted. This is the first instance in Luke's gospel where we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. And keep in mind, these disciples were raised where the only one who was worthy of worship was God himself. And if we even think of 
where Jesus in the wilderness and his temptation repeats back to the tempter, the accuser, Satan, who says, he promises Jesus things he can't promise ultimately. But he says, if you bow down and worship me, all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus, in his temptation, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, states the only person who is worthy of worship is the Lord. The only person who is worthy of worship is God. And so Luke, in his gospel, is demonstrating the only person who should be worshipped is God. So here, at the close of Luke's gospel, he is confirming Jesus' identity. Luke is demonstrating that Jesus is worthy of worship and that Jesus is indeed God incarnate. So the worship of Jesus is key to his identity. And thus, if Jesus in his temptation asserted that only God is worthy of worship, then his disciples would also believe that and confess this. So they're confessing simultaneously that Jesus is God and that only God is worthy of worship. And thus, following their adoration of him, they're obedient. We see, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus had previously told them to remain in Jerusalem until the Spirit is sent to them. So they returned to Jerusalem. And notice that they returned with great joy. And it's very different than how they respond when they first hear that Jesus is leaving in John 16, as I read earlier. They hear of it and they are filled with sorrow, but Jesus tells them their sorrow will be turned to joy. We see that demonstrated here. They are filled with great joy. Their sorrow is turned to joy because Jesus has brought salvation to sinners through his death on the cross and he has risen in the flesh. And 10 days from this event, they know they will receive the Spirit. So following their return to Jerusalem, they continually worship. The text tells them they are continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus has blessed them, and now, in response, they bless God continually. That word of blessing is repeated three times there. We see that Jesus is blessing them in 15. While he's blessing them, he ascends into heaven. And that in response to all of that, they, in turn, bless God. And that they're in the temple continually blessing God. So this, of course, is quite different for us today. There's no temple and there's no need for one. Jesus has fulfilled the role of the temple. And the spirit that formerly dwelt in the temple in the innermost chamber now dwells in the people of God. But for them, they're still awaiting the Holy Spirit. And thus they wait in Jerusalem for another 10 days until the day of Pentecost. And thus for us to model a similar response, we're to live lives that are consistent with obedience to God's commands, with fellowship, with love, with bearing one another's burdens, with spiritual disciplines, studying scriptures, with discipling others, caring for one another, loving one another, living lives that are glorifying to God and overflowing with worship. 
And yet in the midst of all of this, we have to wonder. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Wonderful. But what does that mean for us? What, what do we need to do in response? As I mentioned, the ascension of Jesus draws our eyes toward the second coming of Jesus. And the disciples ask a question. They ask him in Acts 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response is ultimately, don't worry about that. Do not worry about what the Father is doing. You have a task. You have a mission. You are to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You are to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that is still our task today. Jesus told his disciples, and thus us, that he will go away to prepare a place for us, but that he will return. He will return for his bride. But yet, if we look at verses 10 and 11 of Acts 1, what do we see the people doing? They're gazing into heaven as he leaves. Which, in a sense, makes sense. They're, They're marveling at a miraculous event that occurred. But then, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you and into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In a sense, what they're saying is stop staring at the sky and get to work. And this is an important statement because what do we see in the letters to the church in Thessalonica? In Paul's letter there, part of what he's dealing with is a group of men who stopped working and providing for their families because they believed Jesus would be coming back in their lifetimes and they got lazy. And yet, I fear that we're often too quick to do this as well. We read the newspaper, we turn on the TV and think, oh, Jesus is coming back any day now, so we check out. We take the attitude of just let it all burn. And we need to be reminded that Jesus said no man knows the hour. No one knows the day or the hour except for the Father. Or even worse, I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but have any of you ever had the desire or the thought, my time's almost up here, I'll let somebody else do it. Let the young whippersnappers evangelize. Let those with a few more years left in them do the hard work of gospel ministry. Or even worse, when the argument is even less legitimate than that. Let me remind you first, the Lord calls us to be obedient to his commands. And yet many of us are very quick to say, Let someone else do it. Leave evangelism to the pastors. They went to school for that. Or whatever other excuses you can come up with. 
An excuse to not be obedient is still an excuse for disobedience. The disciples didn't do this. I mean, maybe some points or other they did, but if they did do that, we wouldn't be here this morning. Not long after the angels ask them why they're staring into heaven, they get to work. They evangelize. They preach the gospel. They advance the church. They preach Jesus crucified. We see that the next page in Acts is Peter preaching. They plant churches. The disciples are teaching others the scriptures. They care for widows and orphans and the poor. They show them Jesus in the scriptures. They saw Jesus ascending into heaven, believed that he would return soon. And as he said, and as he will, but it was never a reasonable excuse for disobedience. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12, in verses 35 through 40, where he tells them, he starts off saying, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door for him when he arrives and he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have then recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And the parable is about the idea of remaining obedient even in the times where it seemed like the master may not return. When the master returns, you should desire to be found faithful and working, not staring at the sky. Regardless of age, education, energy levels, or ministerial calling, or whatever we should desire, or whatever excuse we can come up with, we should all desire that the Lord finds us ready, dressed for action with our lamps burning. And blessed are the servants who are found working. And so what does this mean? As the disciples worship Jesus, we should worship Jesus. He is worthy to be worshipped. Take great joy in your redemption. The book of Acts, we're told that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we've been given that we might be saved. You won't find salvation anywhere else aside from in Christ Jesus. There's no salvation to be found in Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever other popular religions you'll find all over the place. And to worship Jesus rightly, you have to know who Jesus is appropriately. Other religions pretending and masquerading themselves as Christianity, such as Mormonism or, or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, preach an insufficient Jesus. They don't preach the right Jesus. They preach a Jesus who was created, who is not begotten, a Jesus who was not eternally existing, and yet we've seen that over and over again in the scriptures. Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus in his high priestly prayer twice refers to a time where he eternally existed with the Father. 
And he's been given the name above every other name. And salvation is found in no other name but in the name of Christ Jesus. And it's only in Jesus that we find salvation for our sins. Only in his sacrificial death on the cross and in his resurrection do we find that our sins have forgiveness. Because if we're still in our sins, we still have a judgment awaiting for us. Either Christ died for our sins and he was punished for our sins or you are still going to face that punishment. Even, And we have great joy when we find our redemption in Jesus. We have great joy that Jesus was crucified for us. And as the book of Colossians tells us that Jesus nailed our sins to the cross and canceled the record of our debt. And our response is to believe and to repent of our sins. And once a month, we have a tradition in our church where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's a tradition that has been passed down from Jesus as he's passed to his disciples. And it's a wonderful tradition as we proclaim Christ's body broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. And one thing that I repeat every time that we take the Lord's Supper, as I read from 1 Corinthians 11, is that we are to take of the supper until he returns. Because that supper is a symbol for the wedding supper of the Lamb that we read of in Revelation. And we will continue to profess and proclaim the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins until he returns. And yet, while we eagerly await his return, we still have work to do in aspiring to live lives of godliness, to continue to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, and to have boldness and willingness to tell others of the redemption to be found in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 1, in verse 7, we read, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. At the return of Christ, it will be a wonderful moment for those who are his saints, but it will be a terrifying moment for those who are still in judgment. And in just a moment after I pray, we're going to close with a, a song that is new to the congregation. It is a song that is familiar to Vanessa and I, and so Vanessa is going to come up and lead it, to, with, lead it with me. The words will be on the screen. I encourage you to sing along with us. But it is a song that draws us to the return of Christ. It draws our minds and our eyes and our attentions to the return of Jesus. And so I'll encourage you to sing with us. But it is a song called, See He Comes. And it reminds us that Jesus will return as we read in Revelation 1. And it reminds us of the glorious eternity that awaits us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray 